Welcome to the Extraordinary Creatives Podcast. I'm Kerry Hand, your host and creative coach. Join me each week as we delve into the journeys of creative trailblazers, aiming to inspire you to embrace your creativity and chart your own unique path. I'm excited for you to hear this week's inspiring episode with creative director, writer, curator and broadcaster Echo Eschen. Echo shares how his creative purpose stems from early memories of living in Ghana and returning to grow up in the disturbing context of 1970s Britain. He shares why studying politics and history was a strategic move, the publication that changed his life, and how he found the confidence and emotional ability to speak and interrogate his own thinking. Stay tuned to hear what he's most proud of, the elements you should base your creative career on, how to keep going when you get buffered off course, and his advice for a younger generation. So good to be with you, Echo, and thanks so much for coming on The Extraordinary Creatives. There's so much that I want to ask you because you've had such an incredible creative career, but I guess I wanted to start with knowing what you know now, and through the lens of today, looking backwards, what are the factors do you think that have contributed to making you you? Oh, good Lord. Uh, well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here. And it's really great to talk to you, Kerry. I say that because I'm trying to, I'm trying to <laughs> figure out my <laughs> Take your time. It's a big question. But, you know, I thought I'd get stuck in straight yeah, away yeah. because yeah. I think, you know, I say that I think we're, we're similar age. Yeah, And I think when you've had an illustrious creative career as you have, I think, I don't know if you've experienced this, but as I've got older, it's become a little clearer as to what yeah. those early contributing factors are. Yeah. And also what matters now. Yeah. And to be, yes, the really, they're probably, yes, they're, I mean, there probably are very similar things that I think about and that I feel and that I believe really going all the way back to being a child, to be honest. Yeah. So look, so a lot of this for me comes down to the experience of living in a country like Britain. So I have vivid memories of, so I was born in Britain Mm -hmm. when we were, when I was about two or so, my family went to Ghana, which is where my family's from. We lived there for a few years, came back to Britain when I was about five, so about three years. I remember coming back to Britain and feeling the place quite strange, hmm. feeling the place quite, this is like the 1970s, you come back to Britain in the 1970s, hmm. I just found it strange, it's like a disturbing place. Yeah. You know, it's just on a popular culture front. You're watching TV. The kind of the levels with which people of colour, black people, Asian people, were kind of dismissed as kind of marginal and secondary, mm. uh, somehow not as human as white people in Britain. I experienced this in school, in primary school. Mm. Experienced that in secondary school. I experienced that watching TV. None of this was super strange. None of this is to say that that environment, even as a child, was somehow kind of aberrant and extraordinarily 
uh, hostile or unhappy. The ordinariness, mm. casualness, the everydayness yeah. of a racialized environment really struck me. Yeah, everyday violence. Yeah, you know, everyday casual cruelty, mm. if you will. Everyday carelessness. All of these things are just they're just part and, part and parcel of living in this country. It seems yeah. to be then. And okay, so I still feel this to some extent today. Britain's a different place, the world's a different place, in lots of different ways. I still have a sense for me, maybe, maybe it's just for me, I don't know, of feeling that this place isn't necessarily constructed with me in mind. Mm. At that point, at many points throughout my life and working life, I felt I've had a choice. And that choice is to either go along then with a construction of society, construction or a perspective upon society that posits me as an outsider, that posits me as secondary, or in fact, to try and construct my own way of living and mm. my own way of walking, which is to do things or to assert things from my own perspective, to yeah. say what I feel, to live within the parameters or within the breadth, let's say, of my own imagination, my own creative reach. It seems to me that latter is more interesting. It doesn't mm. necessarily make your life better and so on. But I felt very strongly from an early age that unless I found a way to make my own voice heard, then all you're doing is living within someone else's definition of yeah. who you are. That seems unsatisfactory to me for the reasons I described. Yeah. And it seemed there was more I could do. So really just in one form or another that's what i've done ever since then really yeah i've tried to find a way to live yeah and in those early days when you when you came back to the uk and had that experience of you know that it was a, a change place hmm. how did your parents and your brother i believe hmm. living living at home how did they help you navigate that experience yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it's not something we talked about explicitly, really. Uh, I mean, I think really what I took from that is I think how we all behaved. It's probably more the thing in that, you know, my parents, you know, my parents came to Britain in the 60s, they're immigrants, some parts of that life and that struggle isn't necessarily easy. They didn't particularly share that with us. They're kind of very, uh, you know, fairly clear-minded about who they are. And so was my brother, for mm. instance. So, you know, my brother is now he's a, you know, he's an artist, he's an academic. Again, sort of very strong-willed and very confident. So, you know, I have a sister, I have two sisters as well, but, you know, watching everyone in my family, people try to act as if we could have a say on the world. 
yeah. as if our voices mattered. Yeah. There wasn't any presumption that we should think or act otherwise. Mm. And I think I followed that as the youngest child. To some extent, I'm kind of following a line and a way of being. So to that extent, we didn't spend time analysing or agonising. We just really tried to just think about what we were into. Yeah. Really. Like it's kind of, I mean, I find personally, I find it quite interesting in the, you know, my parents, middle class yeah, immigrant parents, they, you know, they want you to be the, the lawyer. Mm-hmm. Professional kind of thing. And my parents only had that. But at some point, they sort of gave up on that as an idea. They <laughs> just kind of like, just, just gone, get on with the things yeah. that we're interested in. And so to that extent, also, I didn't feel like some enormous pressure to perform some other way of being, to mm. perform respectability or you know, self-improvement. Mm. I had space, really, just to follow my own curiosity. So I'm curious at that. Yeah. In the, you ended up at the London School of Economics, is that right? Yeah. yeah. And, and you have – so I'm, I'm interested in this curious – Curious yeah. side and this creative side and this this other side. I've not said and how they coexist in you. Oh yeah. I mean, where did that spark of creativity start for you? Well, I mean, I mean, <laughs> thank you for bringing that up, Kerry. I mean, in a way, it's really simple. So yes, yeah, so I went to London School of Economics. I studied politics and history, mm-hmm. but it was partly. I mean, this is, sounds crazy. It's partly a strategic decision. I was, you know, I grew up in London, but I wanted to stay in London because I was kind of impatient. I didn't want to spend three years in some campus somewhere just doing nothing and so on and so on. I was actually, I felt like all the time I was growing up, I'm at home, I'm reading Star magazines, reading The Face, Mm. reading NME, reading ID, listening to pirate radio stations. I felt like it 80s end of 80s Britain, I felt like stuff was happening in London that I wanted to be part of. And so one of the things I didn't want to do, what seemed to me one of the things I didn't want to do was exile myself for some years and just, yeah, like be on a campus somewhere with a bunch of students. I felt like there was more to do. I felt excited. This is a time, at that time in Britain, I tell you what, actually, so at this time in Britain, end of the 80s, there's a really interesting flourishing that's taking place. You're actually seeing, in terms of music, uh, to some extent in terms of art, in terms of fashion, really, and culture in general, it's really one of the first flourishings of Black Britain. Mm. So until then, really, let's see, if you even go back to the early 80s and before that, what historically been the case is that the majority of Black people in Britain Commonwealth immigrants that are coming from the Caribbean, chiefly and so on. Generationally, they identified more with the Caribbean than with Britain, mm. let's say. You know, that's where the majority of black people were coming from anywhere. Many of that generation, even that second generation, were born in the Caribbean, for instance. And so they talked in relationship to that. It's only by the time you get to the end of the 1980s that people start even using the term 
Black Britain. Before that, that had mm. felt like a vaguely traitorous term. It felt mm. like some sort of sellout term. So you start to hear people talk about Black Britain. A number of things are happening at the same time as that. You have the first Black MPs elected mm. to Parliament in 87, I think it is. Yes. And that's Diane Abbott's. And, and there's like four MPs elected, four Black and Brown MPs elected to Parliament in the same uh, election. You have them. In uh, scholarship, you have Stuart Hall and Paul Gilroy, who are starting to come to the fore in terms of their cultural analysis of Britain. In music, you have everyone from Sade, if you used before that, to Nana Cherry, and to a range of, you know, other people, soul to soul a couple of years after that. Um, you basically have this collision of politics, philosophy, pop mm. culture, fashion, that's starting to come to fore. This is what end of the 80s, London and Britain felt like to me. And that was why I didn't want to move away for a while, because it felt to me yeah. that that was a really exciting time. Through various coincidences or whatever, or happenstance, I went, you know, I went to LSE, but by pretty much midway through my first year there, I had a, I was, um, had a talk show on pirate radio, on Kiss FM, which is a pirate station at that time. Me and my friends had a programme. We'd interview different kind of musicians and artists who were kind of in town. It was going out a lot. I'd found some way into some aspects mm. of this milieu that was really exciting to me. I think by the end of my second year or whatever, I was writing for the Face magazine, which is, for me, a very exciting thing. Yeah. Um, basically, the strategy of being in London worked for me in that it meant that I found a way into what seemed to me some of the most significant creative aspects of that city at that time. Mm. So being in LSE was, I learned a lot. Yeah. I learned a lot structurally, a fact, about how to think and how to present arguments and how to work through ideas. That was yeah. the work. Yeah. Changes to that, though, I also was spending time going out, listening to music and writing. Mm. And... Putting those together for me was really about realizing that you could write about pop culture, you could write about fashion, you could write about music, and you could take that seriously in the same way as I could take seriously writing an essay. You know? Yes. So that, yeah, that was really even very early on. That was yeah. a real pivotal time for me. Yeah, there's a, a phrase I'm sure you know. Um, it just comes to mind from the 70s where in my family, um, they used to say uh, that's the brass balls of him. <laughs> and I think I think about that confidence that you must have had to throw yourself into that scene with and and that strong opinion opinionated independence that you painted that picture of your family kind of being. Um, I got the impression they were kind of self-contained, independent thinkers. Yeah, I mean, it never really occurred to me. To do otherwise, because again, we come back to the proposition I said at before. What's the choice? It's either that, or I'm subsumed into a system which has no respect for me fundamentally, yeah. and which I'm disappearing within. So, yeah. like I remember after I graduated from Mercy, and um, I wasn't, I became a freelance journalist. I remember having a conversation with my parents. They were like, maybe you should get a job. Like, no, I'd actually rather write. Mm. I'd actually rather explore the things that I find interesting. And 
that was the approach really I took then. And by and large, even working in an environment, it's really still the approach I take right now that the, the, the important thing is to follow your curiosities, to follow your desires, and to make that the fulcrum upon which you establish yourself and your career. Mm. So your creative curiosity led you by the nose through these scenarios. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because look, you know this, Carrot. Like, how you know? How do you keep going? You get your knocks. You know, you get your moments. You know, all sorts of things. You also can get buffeted, of course, quite a lot because other things come yeah. up and so on and so on. So what you know? What's the how? How do you navigate? There's got to be something at the heart of all this. There's got to be a reason. There's got to be a perspective. And for me, it on the simplest level, it was either I do this or I disappear, I vanish, I have no voice, I have no say, I have no space. But then even after you try and exercise that choice, there's the question that follows is, okay, well, if you insist on, if you know, if you assert this notion of visibility, this notion of space, then what do you do with it? What do you say? Yeah. You know, if you claim space, you've got to then have something to say, have something to offer. So then that's the other work. The work yes. is, okay, well, what am I going to do? Do you know? Yeah. What am I going to say? How am I going to get to the things I really believe and the things that I really feel? How do I connect with those? How do I even know that is what I feel? Yeah. I'm interested in those those moments when you had because you you appeared as you said you were hosting radio stations but you appeared on TV and doing interviews and so you were requested to have an opinion and you still are drawn on to have an opinion about things and as we know that's changed since the 80s having an opinion publicly has changed and has opened us up to all kinds of other kinds of feedback I'm interested at that on those early days. You know, what kind of emotional work did you need to do to enable yourself to have a public opinion and hold that space for yourself? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. When I was about maybe about eighteen or something like that, will be about that time before, in fact, going to LSE. So I guess like you know, it's the end of finishing school. Uh, I used to live in the borough of Brent, northwest London. I remember going to Brent Town Hall Library one Saturday and looking through stuff. And I came across this uh, publication. It's like only like 30, 40 pages long. Uh, this publication is called, what's it called? Black Film British Cinema. It was a kind of publication from an ICA conference about black film. And British black film in Britain mm-hmm. again. This is this is again. This is still end of the eighties. So at this period again, this notion of blackness and Britishness simultaneously is a new territory that they're testing out. And it had a number of essays in there. I had an essay from Paul Gilroy. Had an essay from Stuart Hall. Had some stuff about Black Audio Film Collective. And I think Isaac Julian and so on. Mm-hmm. No exaggeration. It changed my life. It mm-hmm. changed my life because. That was really the first time I came across Stuart Hall's writing. And I and I realized reading him and then reading everything else that was in there, I realized that there was a whole set of people who'd been thinking through already mm. some of the questions 
that are involved in navigating Britain as a black person, thinking through the complexities or contradictions or the possibilities of that. It was a reference publication. I took it off the shelves. I tucked it in my jacket. I left the library. I kept it close to me for many years after that. Amazing. It was so important to you. stole it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, because it was a revelation. This is before, you know, it's before um, Paul Gilroy had written The Black Antic. You know, Stuart Hall's writing hadn't been collected in any volume. So I took what I could find and it was meaningful to me. So to come to your question, okay, look, on what basis then do I speak? How do I find the, whatever it is, the confidence or belief or emotional stability mm. to do that? Well, I, for me, it was about trying to do some of the work, some of the tried to do some of the work in terms of trying to interrogate my own thinking. Mm. So if I do say something, hopefully there's some basis to it beyond simple opinion, uh, I still try and work the same way today. I do a lot of reading. Mm. I do a lot of, I feel like you've got to be a scholar of your own imagination. Like mm. if you are, you know, if you are curious about something, <laughs> you're moving towards it. You've also got to look around it. You've also got to try and figure out what the intellectual or critical terrain is that surrounds that particular topic. Like you have to know it well enough to be able to talk about it. Otherwise it's just opinion. Anyone can have an opinion, but the point is hopefully to offer a point of view that can be built up out of an appreciation of the different arguments that are taking place around a particular subject. So that's pretty mm -hmm. much what I do. So even, even in the days of, you know, I used to appear in a, chiefly on, on a TV program, Newsnight Review, you know, you sit around the table, talk about culture and so on. It's a live TV program, but some of the other people on there, you know, Jermaine Greer or Tom Paulin, who's a, you know, Oxford, Oxford academic. Like if you're up against people who are smart and articulate and have, you know, a couple of decades on you in age as well, mm. you need to be on your game. Yeah. It's not just about rolling up. So I, I like to do the homework with everyone. Yeah. And that's the enjoyable part anyway, I think. Yeah, you've just given me an image then of um, like one of those quilts being put together. You know, like your research, it feels like there's a texture to your research around your ideas that when they're yeah. woven together, start to make some kind of sense to you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, again, you're allowed to be curious. So you can go off in different directions. Mm. At some point, some of that stuff adds up. I'm just always trying to find clues to a thing. Yeah. You know, there's, so, I mean, yeah, I think yeah, I'd say the same thing about you in as much as you're curious about something. Okay, well, what does it mean to look at a work of art, let's mm. say, I don't know, for the sake of argument, just for the sake of argument, what does it mean to look at a Carrie James Marshall painting? Yeah. You can look at the painting, but we start to ask questions almost immediately. Who is the figure in there? It's fictional or real? Otherwise, why is the nature of the skin colour that Carrie James 
Marshall depicts so it's the exceedingly dense this kind of hyper blackness it's not a naturalistic tone it's a kind of imagined tone in which case if it's an imagined tone what is he seeing what mm. is he what is he playing with like even to take artworks and you can take the same approach to music you can take the same approach to literature which is that there's nothing accidental particularly that happens in the construction of a piece of work mm. the joy therefore is to follow the threads backwards to unravel that thing and to see also where else it can lead you so mm. you know i mean look you yeah. can see my office here there's a lot of books yeah Equally, though, there's a lot of music there's lots of stuff and the great joy of all of this is just that you're allowed to follow the things you're interested in and sometimes that stuff is useful sometimes it's merely interesting both of those are good things yeah so you mentioned those uh the writers and people who appeared in the in the articles that inspired you i wonder were there any uh mentors that were key to you in those early days you know my sadness Karen, i've never had a mentor huh. a mentor never had a mentor interesting had, yeah yeah i've never so, had uh anyone that i could i mean i have friends certainly now but and it's but especially in those growing up years i kind of had to try and figure it out mm. so would you say that some of those touch points like musicians or writers or academics or theorists were those people that were uh, kind of helping steer you or uh, walk shoulder to shoulder with you through your curiosity i mean yeah absolutely again like my thing is just all, my thing from way back then was just to try and contextualize stuff there was a great bookstore that uh used to be in camden uh so i used to go to camden market lots of time weekends and so on check out clothes um there was a bookstore there called, called compendium mm. which, which had a great array of kind of just cultural theory and interesting books so i'd go to camden go to record and tape exchange buy some records go mm. and look at clothes hassan hajaj the photographer and artist mm -hmm. hassan, he had a shop in yeah. Camden for a while. So I'd go to Hassan and I'd chat to Hassan and see what was going on. And there'd be flyers in his shop, which would tell you about warehouse parties and things that were going on. So I'd go to Hassan's, then I'd go down the road and I'd go to Compendium. And then I'd check out some books and, you know, some of those books, they're imported from the US, so you can't get them anywhere else. So I buy some of those or I browse through them. And even the looking at them is inspiration because some of those books are just kind of, um, you know, they're design books and things like that. And they have pictures in them. So all of this is like part of the same search for inspiration. I'm not, no answer to what I'm doing. I'm just looking for the stuff that seems super interesting to me. And I'm yeah. trying to figure out what ultimately this says about where we are. Are there any connecting threads to the, the the creatives that you're curious about now, you know, in terms of what kind of um, what they're trying to inspire in the viewer or what the, how they make people feel with their work? Is there something that you notice yeah. about what you're drawn I mean, to? I mean, yes. I mean, they're absolutely right. Not exclusively so, but... You know, most of the time I'm interested in you know, black culture. I'm interested in the work of black artists, musicians, writers, not exclusively, but very often because 
that's work that helps me navigate my own way through the world. Mm. So within that, then, I would say that one of the defining characteristics of much of the things I'm interested in is that uh, I think many Black creative figures are sceptical of the world that's presented to them. Many of them are interested. So um, Ralph Ellison, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, one of the canonic works of English literature. Um, It's written in whatever it's 57, I think, something like that, maybe. Anyway, but Ralph Ellison writes Invisible Man, and he describes that book as a work of dilated realism. Mm. It comes out of the world we know, but it goes further than, than the world we know in search and interrogation of the known, you have to go into the unknown mm. to some extent. So it's a process of stretching and pulling and defamiliarizing that he does. Um, we might say that um, that Tony Morrison does something similar. Famously, Tony Morrison bases Beloved on a real incident. Mm. She bases Beloved on the story of a, of a woman who was so appalled at the idea of her children being taken into slavery that she attempted to kill her children instead and certainly mm. killed one of her children. Tony Morrison takes this small piece of information, she deliberately doesn't do any more research about it, but she turns this into the basis of her novel Beloved. The point is the real world, and very often once you refract that to, through racialized imaginings, is kind of bizarre. But the experience of black people very often is that we live within someone else's fantasy. We live within a fantasy of white normality, white ordinariness, white supremacy, whiteness as the basis upon which everything is ordinary, real and true. Mm. And so outside that, you have a strange relationship to to how to navigate space. So I'm interested in artists of all kinds who begin from a presumption that sitting within and without that it can be both disturbing but also can also be a route towards enlightenment it's famously w.e.b du bois in 1903 comes up with a term double consciousness mm. so du bois talks about double consciousness what he's talking about is he talks about the experience of being looked at with some fear and loathing by a white gaze, but he also then talks about looking out at the world through his own eyes. So there's simultaneous experience being looked at and looking. It pretty much stands. It's one of the defining ways to describe black being and blacks black experience. Uh, sometimes that can be a bleak reckoning. Sometimes also it can be a route to joy. Mm. Uh, very often these things are intertwined. So again, to take Tony Morrison, the reason people love her books. Um, despite their bleakness, it's because at their heart they have a treasuring of black aliveness. They have a treasuring of the assertion of being, the insistence upon our humanity is at the heart of those books. So they're tremendously affirming, as well as everything else. Yes. This is really, so time and again, the things that I'm drawn to. Mm, I think. Aliveness. Yeah, I love that. I'm thinking about the show that you're currently curating. If you could say, how how does that come into the 
the work when you're curating, um, how are you deciding what to leave out when there is so much that it excites you? Well, so yeah, so I'm currently curating an exhibition that opens next February, February 24, at the National Portrait Gallery. The show is called The Time Is Always Now, Artists Reframe the Black Figure. It's a show about black figuration. It's a show about, uh, like at the moment, we're living within a tremendous flourishing of black figurative work. Artists from K.J. Marshall to Amy Sherrill to... Um, Henry Taylor, Michael Armitage, Lubaina Himid, Barbara Walker, um, uh, a whole range of artists, Chris Feely, all these artists in the exhibition. One of the, if there's a defining characteristic, they're all individuals, they're all doing mm. their own practice. What I'm interested in is the fact that each of them takes the depiction of black presence not as a given, not as a mirror to the known world, but as an invitation to look again. So to put that another way, if you stage a show like that in the National Portrait Gallery, to some extent, you know, it's a it's a museum that's full of images already of people. Mm. So to some extent, you can put on a show like this, and there's lots of paintings and pictures of black people on the walls. That's all great. But I also feel that you have to do more than that. And what I'd suggest and you have to be guided by the work of the artists in that respect. So if we think about that in relation to those artists, then one of the things I think that unites many of them is that their work offers an invitation, not simply to look at the black figure, but to look with or through the eyes of those artists or their subjects. Their work offers a switch i suppose from an object from an objective objectification of the black mm. figure to a subject position that puts us with or in or beside the black figure that's the shift and that's the mm. shift that i want to illustrate or illuminate through the show so the show has three different themes as we go through it one of them is double consciousness but really it comes down to this thing it comes down to the uh, I would say a shared sense that when each, when any of those artists is put in uh, paint, paint or pencil to paper, they're not trying to describe the real world. They're trying mm. to describe the world as they see it with the nuance and complexity of contradiction that comes from an understanding of double consciousness, that comes from an understanding that we are seen from the outside, even as we look out from the inside. Mm. All of that there means that the, the works they conjure aren't naturalistic. Again, they're not trying to repeat the world. They're trying to both interrogate the world and offer another way of seeing the world. They're trying to defamiliarize. They're trying to dilate reality. They're trying to destabilize, I think, the ground beneath our feet mm. and help us collectively realize that there's more ways to look at to think about, to embody black being and simply this experience of looking at the figure. Yes. So that's, yeah. yeah. That's Beautifully put. Is there um, a, a particular work that you could tantalise us with that you're particularly excited about bringing to the, uh, the gallery? Actually, I'll tell you one of them. Um, so there's a work by an artist called Noah Davis 
so Noah Davis. So the so all the works in the show, almost all the works in the show, all the works in the show are from two thousand onwards. So they're all relatively recent works. Uh, they're all by living artists, except for uh, Noah Davis. So Noah Davis is an LA-based artist who tried tragically young, died in his thirties, uh, way too soon, um, but left behind a compelling body of paintings. Uh, which are strange and dreamlike in many cases. It's a kind of painting he's got of a child riding on the back of a unicorn, which is kind of beguiling, coming out of the darkness. But the painting I think about here in relation to this, it's a painting called 1975, which is, it's a painting of a swimming pool, a public swimming pool, I think from Chicago, because they're based on a series of paint of photographs that his mother took in 19 in Chicago in 1975. So 1975, this painting is of an open air swimming pool, public swimming pool. It's just uh, full of people, chiefly black people, kind of disporting in the water. The picture plane is bisected by uh, by an image of someone diving into the water. We see them heels first. We see them. Or the, by the soles of their feet first. That's the kind of most significant image of the picture. And we see them diving across diagonally into the water, splashing into the water, their feet out, while other people are playing in the water. And there's a lifeguard sitting in the distance on his high chair. It's a moment of pleasure and abandon and solidarity, arguably a simple moment, arguably here, realism conjured. A uh, moment of pleasure in the sun, except when we start to think about, well, what's the history, for instance, of swimming pools and places of leisure in mm. America? One of those histories is that black people have historically been excluded from those places, um, certainly before, whatever it's Brown, before which, whichever law it was, or case it was Brown versus the Board of Education, segregation was entirely uh, legal. In America, so you could have swimming pools that were, you know, legally segregated, no white people allowed. Uh, in the 1950s, moved to desegregate those. These are contested in different places in America. People are pouring acid into swimming pools. They're arresting black people. There are riots that take place when black people try and um, exercise their rights to swim in a swimming pool. So this is contested ground water. Mm. Same with beaches. Same with, in fact, any sites of, or many other sites of gathering where black people gather simply to enjoy or express themselves. Famously, 1963, uh, or is it 64? 64, possibly. Um, there's, a, there's a church in Alabama that's bombed and four young black girls are killed by a white racist. Even to this day, Churches are sites of attack. Yeah. You still get black or white uh, people with guns going into black churches to inflict violence, intimidation, murder. So sites of black gathering all the way through to Black Lives Matter and the kind of intimidation, intimidatory tactics and heavy-handed policing exercised mm -hmm. on people in Black Lives Matter. Much as this is just in America, we could say the same about Britain. All of this is to say that sites of gathering, sites of communality, sites of aliveness, sites of pleasure, turn out to be potentially contentious. Potentially yeah. Sites of life, yes, but also potentially death. Then yes. Also potentially, you know, the restrictions of liberty. So 
Noah Davis's 1975, it's a blissful painting, but it sits on fraught ground. And that's yeah. really what I'm interested in the show like how do you then get to aliveness yeah. what do you have to walk through to get to that place many things aren't said in that painting but i would suggest they remain within the frame even if they're not visibly present yeah i just noticed when you were speaking and you sighed that expulsion of air kind of yeah. says everything really yeah. you know i feel it and you know you've made me want to see the work but i lived i lived through it with you just then so thank you so much for sharing that's really exciting i guess all of the incredible research that you do around these shows and the way you've described you following your curiosity um and you work really hard on these shows over a long period of time and you're a freelancer still mm. so you've navigated this beautiful tapestry of a career over time and you've made it work for you because you work on, you're working on books right now too, I believe. How many yes. have we got on the go at the moment? Uh, well, including the catalogue for this portrait gallery show, there's four. Four books. Yeah. Amazing. So it sounds like a, um, a strange question given the richness and lushness of the, the attention that you, get, you give to your creative work. But how do you compartmentalise your brain to be yeah. able to give attention in the way that you do to these separate projects? Yeah, look, uh, uh, really, diary management is the okay. bane of my life. Yeah. Okay? It really is because it's the one thing where I have to come out of myself and just make sure that I put dates in, make sure that I meet deadlines. So the pragmatic answer is that I have to be fairly structured if I've got deadlines, I actually have to meet them because if I don't, it yeah. starts to throw everything else off. Yeah. So actually, I'm, but also that's a, that's a thing from being, you know, journalists where deadlines are sacrosanct. So yeah. I take them seriously and deadlines can, although they're a burden, deadlines can also be your friend. Yeah. They actually allow you to structure. They allow you to say, okay, look, I need to do this by this and I need to do that by that. That's okay. So, yeah. As long as you actually put them in place, then it gives you a bit of structure around everything else. Then the other side of that, the more creative part, is that for me, the secret is that I actually don't make that much differentiation in that many of the things I do follow on from each other. Yeah. So the things I say no to generally are things that take me too far away from the broader span of what I'm interested in because then you have to do research or thinking that's exclusively about that one thing. And it's not necessarily the case that you can use that thinking or research otherwise. So most things I do, they're not the same, but the thinking I do, the research I do doesn't go to waste. Yes. It means I can use it for something else. All the thinking I'm doing around this portrait gallery show, I can use it to apply to you know, other projects I do and some of the writing I'm doing, yeah. other shows in the future and so on. Um, I'm going to, what is it? I'm going to, I'm doing a, taking part in a conference at Deep University this week, going to Atlanta on Wednesday. And um, so I have to do a paper, haven't started the paper yet. 
not at all, but I'm going to use some of the thinking I did for writing an, for an essay that I wrote just recently for Julian Knox's show at the Barbican. Great. Um, so I'm going to use some of that work as the basis for what I say at Duke. So, yeah, I love that. So you'll, they tend to cross over, and that's so. If I can find a way, essentially, to expand or deepen the overall body of work that I'm interested in, then I tend to say yes to something because it has, it's a, you know, it's a subsidized way of doing research basically. Yeah. Uh, but if it's going to take me too far out of myself, then I really can't accommodate it because yes. it's for it. I love that because it, it's um, something that I share with my clients all the time, uh, creatives that I work with in that I think it goes back to that bigger why you know, that you got clear on your purpose yeah. at a, re a reasonably young age. And actually, you know that this is a cumulative creative quest that you're on. And so um, you're discovering more and expanding more in certain areas, but it's very clear what doesn't fit into that. Yeah. So with this gorgeous jigsaw that you're creating, um, where everything is building a, a wider or bigger picture for you, I know it's hard because you've done so much. But when you look back through the lens of today, what do you feel is specially chuffed that you've, um, that you've delivered or achieved? You know, what do you feel excited by? And I'm asking, Echo, because so many of our um, creatives that we know and love, you know, it's those moments of celebration I've be I feel are important. You know, and to pay homage to the things that we've done through lots of other things have contributed to that, to those things being a success. So I know that your modesty is, is uh, I'm sure, acknowledging all of the other factors and people that have contributed to those things. But nevertheless, from your point of view, what do you feel happy that you've that you've achieved in your career so far? Well, thank you for phrasing it that way, Kerry, because I I'm happy to talk, but I get, yeah, I tend not to feel that it, it's about kind of, you no, know. I appreciate it's not a meritocracy. We're not talking about a hierarchy of success or power in that way. But I think it's those moments of joy. I wonder if you'd okay. share with I mean, us. I, I mean, so, I mean, if you, okay, probably let's, two sets of things really from the poles of my career very early on when i when i first started i'm still excited by the first piece i wrote for the face magazine mm. so you know it depends if you know the face you know face used to be the coolest magazine blah 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 the first piece i wrote for it was a hundred words long it took me like a week to write this hundred words it's hard to write short texts yeah it felt like a long piece at the time uh, it was about kickers. It was about shoes. Mm. It was about these particular shoes that had uh, kind of returned to popularity. I was super pleased, excited to even be able to write that. As it turned out, the reason why they had come back into popularity around that time was because they were actually part of early acid house uniform. People mm. wore them to raise and so on. So even just walking around noticing people wearing their shoes i turned that into a small piece that piece in itself spoke to a larger shift in the culture um but my part in that 
was it gave me this kind of validation that you could walk down the street, see something, sell a story on that basis, even if it's only 100 words, point that out because no one else seemed to have noticed it. Yeah. That, the exciting thing for me, for me was that you could pull a few things together. You could pull in the instance of people wearing the shoes to this broader story about a new cultural wave in terms of acid house. And then that could sit within a magazine that I'm revered. Yeah. And I could be the person to join those different elements together. That's one thing. And then really probably genuine, like the, the, the thing more recently that makes me happy, you know, this show I did last year at the Hayward Gallery in the Black Fantastic, uh, because actually it was a weird summation of many parts of the things I've been curious about for much mm. of my life science fiction and comics, uh, speculative fictions and other realities, lots of music, lots of movement, but just the deep pleasure of being able to introduce uh, a way of seeing through the eyes of these different artists into a space and to create a space. So, I mean, we've been talking, I've been talking somewhat about, yeah, how you... Oh, I think anyway, how you make space uh, as a black person in a country that doesn't necessarily want you. And one of the premises that I try and work with, with shows sometimes, and certainly within the Black Fantastic, was what does a black world look like? Mm. If the world world, if the white majority world is a world of hazard, as we might see, in fact, even conjured in, Noah Davis is 1975. Mm. The swimming pool is a contentious space, even if it's a space of retreat in Idol, it's still a contentious space. What is a space unencumbered by white gaze? What does that look like? And what does that feel mm. like? What does that sound like? So in the Black Fantastic, it was a kind of gathering together with these artists and artworks and amazing artists. It is also an attempt to think about what can the space feel like? What can a space feel like that's predicated on black imaginary, black possibility, black dreaming? Mm -hmm. So there was a pleasure, from my personal perspective, in being in that space because the artist really responded to some of that thinking and some of those prompts. And mm -hmm. they did amazing work in terms of some of the new work we showed, even some of the existing work we showed and the ways that we worked with them to create the space. And again, this is time together of, yeah, ideas and theory, but also speculation and fiction and, well, fantastic. So, yeah. Yeah. It was an amazing show. Okay. And I think it was really exciting for me because we talked about that show. Do you remember when I was at Somerset oh, yeah. House? And uh, I so wanted to do that show with you. Um, however, I think something I know from the very concept through to how it was realized, I think all of the things that you said totally were felt by hundreds and thousands of people. But there's also something about the feeling that you're talking about. And I think in all of your work that you do, for me, there's a kind of a frequency. Is there a, like there's a kind of thrum in the body that you 
And so we experience it on a somatic level as well as an intellectual level. And I think that knowing, obviously, um, having done shows myself and pulling this stuff and giving it to a public to decide, you never quite know if people are going to land it here, if they're going to feel it here in the heart, in the body, as well as the mind. And so to make something that is intellectually robust, but also popular, which going back to your early roots, that's like a major, a major thing, you know. So hats off, man. It was so good. But also I think for me, what gives me goosebumps is knowing it's when you can move me to a place like through my body first and the mind follows. Do you know? Like I think that's a major achievement and yeah, massive respect for you. Thank you very much, Karen. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, but that's what you, that's, yeah. It's not enough just to think something. Yeah. You have to get to the feeling. And sometimes the feeling is if you're using music, sometimes it's just the bass frequency, you know? Yeah. Sometimes it's also, you know, colour and texture and movement and all of this yeah. is kind of extraordinary thing making yeah. subjects because they're physical spaces. You invite someone into the space. So the space, so people inhabit the space, they complete the kind of loop of a show. But yeah, they have to feel something in there. Yeah. But I also love the fact that you're not averse to using a kind of a seduction. You know, there's a seduction of the senses and then you get a psychological bop on the nose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you get pleasure is important. Yeah. You know, there's no notion that an exhibition, like exhibitions aren't supposed to be good for you. You know, they're not worth they're not worthy exercises. They have to exist on a level of seduction. They have to draw you in. And that's not antithetical to their seriousness. Yeah, hundred percent. Sophisticated enough to walk that balance yeah good artists you know offer these realms yeah and the joy is being able to exist in relation to them even if it just means looking at a painting yeah it can be an experience and that's all you're trying to invite people to do you're trying to give them a context within which to do that to hopefully see it it's not even necessarily more clearly or more truthfully it's just the way you see it that's all yeah. you're doing or the way you feel it. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. That's yeah. so beautiful. So coming to, towards the end of our time together, I'm so grateful for the journey you've taken us on. But I'm curious, knowing, knowing that you're moving into the future following your curiosity, sort of when you need a little bit of a boost for to galvanize yourself when you've got all these deadlines, when you're feeling a bit tired, you have family life that you balance with your work too. Yes. How do you, where do you go to get your energy to, to plug in and, and oh, revitalize? Wow. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's not super complicated. Like, you know, like everyone, like lockdown was so interesting, for instance, like, I mean, you know, so my family, my wife, two kids, we're at home through that time. But it was a very good exercise in what this means. How do you, because I was working a lot, mm-hmm. um, but at the same time, yes, okay, how do you regenerate into that? To be honest, really, really simple things. Like we've got a little nature reserve quite close by here. Mm-hmm. So I can go there. You know, my wife works at home as well, so we can go for a walk through the daytime. Sometimes we go for a run. 
you know but it's really really simple like i got within you know within the appalling existential crisis of covid people dying and so on very lucky no one close to me died but it made me very very grateful for being able to walk outside and be able to see nature mm. also again i sort of ended up quite treasuring that period in particular because he saw quite unusual nature in urban surroundings i saw hawks i saw slow worms i saw you mm. know various creatures that wouldn't have bats that i wouldn't normally see because things are more busy so i got really i got very tuned into just trying to do something quite simple just mm. go outside look at some plants look at you know look at some water come back read some poetry you know listen mm. to Alice called train like do do some of the things that take you into yourself or take you out of yourself yeah have that as a kind of um um a tonal register like yeah. got to be you talk about frequency like what's the frequency upon which you can work what's the frequency upon which you know that okay this is a good base for me from which to proceed now yes. so i got reasonably good at finding that pitch and yeah i still hold to that yeah so you know, for like it's like it's almost uh, and but i'm almost pathetically grateful <laughs> yeah yeah no I'm with you it's the same when I was in London and lived um close to hollow ponds um in Leytonstone and now I live in a in the countryside in Derby and I think I found mine too that sort of that baseline of of nature but also other things to feast on you know for which you know for the for the senses and for the soul but also to be reminded of my own insignificance yeah oh yeah yeah yeah. but also is all of these things are useful for the work this is the thing so like for me it's it's like i said my office right now is on whatever it is the top floor of our house which is only like third floor or something like that but it means i can look out there's a big tree over here squirrels in the tree you know I'm very grateful to be able to see aliveness around. Yeah. Me. Yeah. Comes down to and that. Yeah. That's what I try and anchor myself to, even though obviously this is always a shifting proposition because things grow up, live, and die. Being aware of that, though, again, you know, it's a, yeah, there's a humbling beauty to all of that. There is. So if you could pass on or pass the baton, to uh, a younger generation, your kids or younger creatives coming through, what what would you pass on to them? Yeah, well, I mean, look, as we've been saying, I mean, I think two things. You can say no to stuff if it doesn't feed you. Yeah. You can say yes to stuff. You can really go with it. You can explore it. There's worlds upon worlds inside a thing. And that seems to be the most exhilarating thing. I mean, no exaggerate. This sounds super corny, but, you know, I'm up pretty early. I'm working on stuff. It's not really work. It's just the things that I'm just genuinely excited about and genuinely curious about. There's a lot of them. So 
There's a lot to do. There's a lot of joining the dots. All of this is to say that if you say yes, it's useful. I think it's good to mean it. Yeah. If to say yes, you feel that there's something you that there's something you've got to say here. There's something you've got to contribute. There's something meaningful that matters mm-hmm. to you here that you're trying to share and connect with with the rest of the world. That's the goal. Yeah. What a beautiful way to end. Okay. Thank you for saying yes to this in your busy schedule. It's such a pleasure and a privilege. In case people want to find out more about your work, where would you sign them, signpost them to? God. Uh, well, I mean, look, basic. I mean, simplest thing maybe is Instagram. Yeah. Echo Eshen, at Echo Eshen at Instagram. That's, I try and, because I've got a website, but I think that's just a holding page thing, really. So, yeah, Instagram, I kind of post as my staff. And then beyond that, man, yeah, there's often stuff I'm doing. Yeah, that we should look out for the new books and the show coming up in February. It's a very exciting, uh, exciting time. And so thank you so much for uh, such a a rewarding and refreshing uh, time together. Thank you, Echo. Thank you. Please follow and share the podcast. It helps us to support more brilliant creatives like you. Recommend future guest suggestions in your reviews. They might well become part of our show. Thanks for being part of our creative community. Until next time. Thank you.